If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Today, is the third Sunday of Advent, this liturgical season that helps us step out of the hustle and bustle that we might cultivate hope, peace, joy, and love. And as we move through this season together, our theme comes from the line from Mary's song of protest and praise. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. God's mercy is for those who fear God from generation to generation. That phrase, from generation to generation, reminds us that our lives, our histories, and our actions are interconnected and woven together. The work of God is always unfolding in and through us. Let us bow our heads together. We are two weeks out, Holy One but we wonder if it will really be Christmas. For so many of us, things aren't the way they used to be, and we're having trouble getting into the spirit, and there are a hundred different reasons. The kids are older and don't seem to be as excited. There aren't as many decorations to put up, and even still, putting them up feels overwhelming. Not everyone will gather around the table this year, and for some of us, it's been more than just this year that our hearts have hurt over their absence. Sometimes the dark night stretches out before us as if it will never end. What do we do with ourselves? But, but we have heard carols playing, and it's hard not to sing along and the decorations we do put out make us smile. And it's also true that the extra hours of darkness make it possible to enjoy the Christmas lights longer. And there is also the news of Brittany Griner being home at last, and our hearts have grown three sizes knowing that someone else's family is now whole. So maybe it is Christmas already. 
Be with us, Holy One, as we remember that it doesn't have to be perfect to be absolutely right. We pray in the name of Jesus, who arrived with light and singing and smiling faces, and it was enough. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son. And Joseph named him Jesus. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. We started this Advent season with the reading of the genealogy of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, who felt it necessary to list 14 generations of people, which took 17 verses to do. Reading that passage aloud to all of you was hard times. When names like Aminadab and Hezekiah are the easy names, the preacher knows she just has to lower her shoulder and get to the rim. The only way out is through. <clears throat> I am going to be candid. I am a little disappointed with you. All, like the whole congregation. My colleagues reported that after they made it through the reading of the genealogy in Matthew, they were applauded. <laughs> Not here. Not an girl in sight. It's fine, I'm obviously over it. Now I'm really over it. <laughs> so then last week we jumped to the Gospel of Luke, the scene of the angel's visit to Mary and her response. And now we're back in Matthew. And as you heard, this is a very different version of the birth narrative and told entirely from Joseph's viewpoint. He is the subject of the story and he is the driver of the action throughout. 
Joseph only briefly fades into the background as the story continues into chapter two, in which the main character is King Herod, known to history as Herod the Great, with a major supporting role played by the Magi. Of course, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are also in that chapter, but what they do is in response to Herod's actions. But then the camera does indeed return its focus to Joseph. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream too. Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And then after that, we really do not hear a thing from or about Joseph the rest of the gospel Scholars disagree about the reason for Joseph's scant references in the overall gospel story, but the gospels are clear that Jesus was widely known as Mary and Joseph's son. That phrase is found in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Thus, whether for a short time or a long time, it cannot be understated that Joseph's presence was meaningful in shaping Jesus into who he became. The Reverend Daryl Hamilton points out that we often ask this of Mary, but what did Joseph know? I mean, we really should be singing. Joseph, did you know that's your baby boy? would one day walk on water. Joseph, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? And you can sing the rest of that song in your head the rest of the day. <laughs> but the story does tell us that there were several things that Joseph knew. Joseph knew that his betrothed was pregnant even though they had not lived together. Joseph knew that he would not marry her because of this. Given that the text tells us that Joseph was a righteous man, I also think it is reasonable to say that Jesus, I mean that Joseph knew that the rules were made for men. So Mary would face the harshest of punishments for this pregnancy, while whoever else was involved would escape unnamed and unscathed. And Joseph also knew he had the power to mitigate some of this. So as the text says, he planned to divorce her quietly. But before Joseph set in motion his plan to divorce Mary quietly, Joseph took a nap. And that might actually prove that Joseph was righteous, for according to multiple examples in scripture that we have talked about before, one of the most spiritual things that we can do is rest. Stop laying in bed and doom scrolling and go to sleep, y'all. While Joseph took his holy nap, an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. 
for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relationships with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. As we said last week, we don't know if this is exactly how it happened, but we know that this story is true. We also know that it is possible that Joseph chose this path because of the other things he knew. Joseph knew about making choices just to survive, about one's future depending on the compassion of someone else. In first century Palestine, most people were being crushed by Pax Romana, Rome's relentless program of peace through victory, which really meant peace through war, occupation, and oppression. So Joseph knew about violence. Joseph knew about how to survive. Joseph knew about being a minority. So perhaps after Joseph let his heart and mind settle, he was able to choose a different way. He chose to stay with Mary. He chose peace over violence, grace over condemnation. Perhaps because he was tired of living in a world that had afforded neither to him. In choosing to continue as Mary's partner, Joseph was also choosing to parent a child in a harsh world, choosing to teach a child how to live with care and compassion. And of course, that sounds familiar to us. That is what we are all trying to do as parents and grandparents and adults who are trying to raise the children in our lives. But we cannot forget the historical and social context of this story, the oppression and the violence all around Joseph and would thus have been all around Jesus. We cannot forget that Joseph would have to teach Jesus how to survive in a world where one misstep would be an excuse for their occupiers to respond with violence and even death. It can, it, it can be difficult for us to imagine this here in white Christian America. So this morning, Reverend Daryl Hamilton, as a black father raising a black child, invites us to read Joseph's story through the lens of the black American experience, of the challenge of raising black children in a world that is at best indifferent and at worst deadly. So this morning, we will sit with Joseph and his story and hear it perhaps more closely to the way it actually happened. And we will do this with the help of a letter, a letter written by black poet Clint Smith in which he speaks to a son he may have someday and speaks into the worries Joseph would have had about raising a child in a world not built for him. Son, I want to tell you how difficult it is to tell someone they are both beautiful and endangered, so worthy of life, yet so despised for living. I do not intend to scare you, 
My father, your grandfather, taught me to follow a certain set of rules before I even knew their purpose. He told me that these rules would apply to everyone, but not everyone. That they would not even apply to all of my friends, but they were rules I would need to abide by nonetheless. Too many black boys are killed for doing what others give no second thought. Playing our music too loud, wearing a sweatshirt with the hood up, playing with a toy in the park. My father knew these things. He knew that there was no room for error. He knew it was not fair, but he loved me too much not to teach me, to protect me. I have told you this story before, but it is worth revisiting. Many a Saturday morning, my friends and I would ride bikes through the neighborhood together. The wind chiseled our faces into euphoric naivete. The scent of breakfast being prepared seeped out from beneath the cracked windows of the shotgun homes that lined our streets. All that we deemed worthy of our attention were the endless possibilities that lay atop our handlebars, which is to say, we were children. We were a motley crew, an interracial assemblage of young boys that would have made the Disney Channel proud. We dreamed of building tree houses with secret passwords, of fighting dragons effortlessly sidestepping their perilous, fiery breath, of hitting the game-winning shot in stadiums of thousands of people chanting our names. Our ambitions were as far-reaching as the galaxy we had been born into. We were small planets simply attempting to find our orbit. One afternoon, we went to the field where we so often played football, tackle of course, as we were set on replicating the brawn and bravado that we watched each Sunday on our televisions. This time, the field was closed, the fence bolted by a lock that could not be snapped. Our friend, whose long blonde hair dangled gently over his eyes, tossed the football to me and immediately began to climb the fence. I watched him, the ease with which he lifted one foot over another, the indifference of his disposition to the fact that this was an area we were quite clearly not supposed to enter. I remember hearing the soft, distant echo of a police siren, Perhaps a few blocks away, perhaps headed in a different direction, I couldn't be sure, but I knew better than to ignore it. He reached the other side and looked back, beckoning the rest of us to join him. I held the football in my hand, looking at him through the chain-link fence between us. It was at this moment I realized how different he and I were before I had the words to explain them to either him or myself. How he could break a rule without a second thought, whereas for me, any mistake might have the most dire of consequences. I hope to teach you so much of what my father taught me, but I pray that you will live in a radically different world from the one he and I have inherited. I do not envy his task, and I will do my best to tell you what I know. I will tell you these things because I know how strong and resilient you will be, 
how you will take their fear and make a fort of this skin and turn it into a bastion of love against unwarranted inhumanity. I want you to realize that sometimes it will not be the things the world tells you, but the things it does not tell you. It will be the omissions rather than the direct affronts that do the most damage. Your textbooks will likely not tell you how Thomas Jefferson thought that blacks were inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. How Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal left a hole just wide enough for black families to fall through while lifting the rest of the country into the middle class. It will not tell you how the federal government actively prevented black families from purchasing homes in cities across this country. It will not tell you how police departments across this nation are incentivized to see you as a problem, something to be taken care of. They will not tell you these things. And because of that, they will expect you to believe that the contemporary reality of our community is of our own doing that we simply did not work hard enough, that things would be different if we would simply change our attitudes, the way we speak, the way we dress. With that said, do not think for one moment that you cannot change what exists. This world is a social construction. It can be reconstructed. This world was built and it can be rebuilt, use everything that you accrue to reimagine the world. You are not a mistake. You are not a deficit. You are not something to be eradicated or rendered obsolete. You exist beyond pathology. You come from a lineage of those who built this country. You come from my grandfathers, one who toiled tobacco fields amid the ever-expanding pastures of Mississippi throughout his adolescence, and the other who fought a war for a country that would spit at his feet as soon as he put his gun down. You come from grandmothers who dedicated their lives to teaching in communities where the quality of one's education was subject to the whims of the state. You come from parents who both protected my parents, who both protected me from violence and made me feel whole. You are the manifestation of their unyielding commitment to overcome. Imagine that that is what Joseph said to Jesus. You are the manifestation of their unyielding commitment to overcome. Reverend Hamilton writes, and I too am convinced, that Jesus' survival and flourishing cannot begin without Joseph being present to help him navigate the horrors of oppression and imperial occupation. Now we must ask ourselves how this story already happened and is still happening. Let this story remind us, church, that the Christmas story was not written as feel-good comfort for white Christian America. The Christmas story was written 
by the oppressed, for the oppressed. It is a story of the poor and lowly being lifted up, of people choosing bravery and courage in the face of fear. It is the story of choosing love over violence. And we must remember to read it that way and act accordingly as a matter of faith. May it be so. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.